Hi, my name is Therese Myatt, and you're listening to the Turning Points Podcast. Turning Points Magazine is a college publication that is made entirely by and for Native college students at Arizona State University. From print to airwaves, Turning Points Magazine is elevating the Indigenous college student experience within Indian country. Esther, thank you for joining us today with the Turning Points podcast. Let's start off with you introducing yourself. Where are you originally from? Well, I'm originally an Air Force brat, so we lived all over. But my family is from a little town in the middle of the desert um, called Ajo, Arizona. It's, oh, I don't know, maybe about 100 some miles from here. And I have lived most of my life in Tucson, Arizona, and now I'm here, here in Phoenix, but I'm, I'm definitely connected to Arizona and the Sonoran Desert. So what are you studying here at ASU? I'm studying theater. I am pursuing an MFA, a Master of Fine Arts in Dramatic Writing, and it is actually my second master's degree. I have one, but it wasn't really serving me because it was just an MA, and I needed a terminal degree, which an MFA is, and I decided to do that at ASU. It's got a really wonderful program. It's invited to go to theater or submit to theater masters every year and only 12, I think still 12. When I started, it was only 12 uh, universities are invited to submit to that, that particular event. So as a Native college student, what is your focus when you're in theater or um, playwriting, dramatic writing? What is it like? What's your focus? Well, I I have a really strong attraction to not only for me, but for uh, other students or other playwrights who really speak from their voice or speak from uh, their experience and who they are. And for me, my first project uh, was in Indian school. I was inspired by a song that my uncle uh, wrote and has sung since I was a little girl. And it is about a little boy who was taken from his mother's arms and uh, incarcerated in one of the Indian boarding schools. And it's, that song has haunted me. And I always thought I would write a children's play about that song. And when I got here, I wasn't even thinking about that. I was thinking about writing other things and it kept coming back almost. I really believe in ancestors talking to me and listening to them. And sometimes I don't really listen with my ears or my intellect. They talk to me from a different place. And so they kept saying, what about Indian school that, you know, writing this, I mean, that wasn't the title at the time, but writing the story of the little boy and so that's what I started working on from my very first research class. I just started 
researching more about the uh, history, how they got started, what the experience was of uh, first-person experiences that people talked about from having suffered in them and also how families experienced that when uh, people came back. So for me, that's where that's where my heart led me was to do that that work about Indian schools. And I wanted to share with listeners that Indian School is a play written by um, Esther. And before we dive into this amazing applied project of yours, um, I wanted to learn a little bit more about how theater became a turning point in your life? Well, I was always attracted to it. My um, my family tends to be very theatrical, and it seems like uh, <laughs> a lot of the yucky people I know are very theatrical, so I don't know what it is about us, but we tend to be um, very much about spectacle and about uh, performance and, and performance in rituals. So uh, it was always something um, that was happening. My grandfather was this brilliant storyteller, but he didn't just tell stories. He enacted them. So he would tell cautionary tales about things that were funny and uh, ridiculous and absolutely amazing. And I always thought someday I'm going to be that kind of storyteller. And uh, so his voice comes through a lot in all of my work, everything I do. So I think theater is just something that attracted me right away. And he's one of the first of um, the grandparents who was really excited about theater. Uh, You know, everybody else like, why don't you do something more, whatever, business or, or, engineering or science and he was one of the first ones who got really excited about um, not only me but my brothers also and my younger sister are theater artists as well and he was very very uh not only supportive but but genuinely thrilled that we were we were doing theater and we've done theater since we were kids all of us so it's something that I, I've done most of my life. That's beautiful. I really love how families can just kind of um, inspire what it is that students go towards when they're in college. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's hard. A lot of, um, I notice a lot of first-generation college students, their families really want them to do something that they consider you know, part of the, um, what is it, STEM, you know, doing something that and leaving out the arts. And so I was very fortunate to have family who said, yeah, go do that thing that you want to do. And, uh, you know, there were, were some that made suggestions for sure, especially the grandparents. But uh, overall, they definitely supported college and school. And it was specifically my grandfather, who was like, yeah, and do that theater thing, too. <laughs> so. so could you share with us what goes into playwriting and directing a play or creating something that 
entails all of that? Uh, well, oh, so many things. Theater is very um, intertextual. So, you know, as a playwright, I write a play, have a script, but then it goes into the hands of a director who has his or her, uh, in my case, his, it's Michael Scholar Jr. who's directing my play, who also has um, his his mother's family is Yaki. So uh, it's kind of cool because we, we um, were able to kind of see some some things in the play and get excited about it having characters who are who are I mean there are a lot of different characters but the main character is Yaki. So uh what happens then you give it to the director, the director has a team, uh does auditions and casts the play and then it kind of goes out of the playwright's hands and a really exciting and wonderful way because I have no idea. I have this vision when I wrote it, but it's going to be a collaborative experience with designers of the set and designers of costumes and people doing different kinds of research on different aspects that um, need to go into creating the world of the play on stage and actors bringing whole new idea for each character. Uh, you know, I may have heard a line one way when I wrote it, but then an actor brings something completely magical and and different and more textured and with more life than I had even imagined on the page. So that's kind of what happens. And I come from uh, acting and directing. I have a real strong directing background. So this is my first time of really embracing just playwriting. So I really have the perspective of of an actor and a director. When I write, I often think, oh, that would be really difficult for someone to do on stage. I'll do this instead. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's really a, a team effort, a big group effort. And, you know, a different theater on a different... Um, in a different state or a different place is going to it's going to look completely different and I think that's beautiful I don't have the strong ownership that maybe playwrights who come to playwriting directly and not through being a theater artist may have they may you know really think that whatever's in their head is what's going to go on the stage I don't it's like surprise me. What is what is it going to look like? What are you going to do that's new and strange? And and that's happening. Like whenever I go to rehearsals, I see somebody like, "Well, I did not picture that. That's pretty interesting." Um, so yeah, it's exciting. That sounds similar in the process of Turning Points magazine. So, you know, everything starts off with rough drafts. Well, it, at the core is an idea of a story, wanting to share a story. And we go from that little speck of an idea into drafts of stories, multiple rough drafts that finally get to the final product. And then with that product, um, the graphic designers, they collect the photos that are shared and they create um, the story, which comes to life on the page. So it's really cool to kind of hear with theater, it's a similar process, but it goes down a different avenue where everything is acted out. 
Right, right. I love that. I love that description of that collaborative storytelling that happens through, uh, you know, an artistic venture like writing and and like writing for turning points and that, you know, who else is going to have their hands in it? How are they going to help shape this thing that more than one person has, um, I guess, feed in, uh, I don't know if ownership is the right word, but feed into the whole uh, final product of it. And it makes it so much richer when, you know, it's just more people. Yeah, involved and exactly. painting on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, what what is it like for you when you see the process play out when you're creating a play and you see these ideas going onto paper and everything coming to life on stage? It's a very exciting. It's um it, and for this particular um, most recent project of mine. Um, it just feels so important. And, and the weird thing is sometimes I'll be watching it and forget that I wrote any of it. It's like I'm watching this whole new thing happen and this whole new story being told. And I know what's going to happen at the end and I know all of the things, but it's um, I, I have been forgetting that I even wrote it. I just didn't enjoy rehearsals and see new things come out and see other people just taking it and making it their own. And uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's exciting and amazing. And every once in a while, I pinch myself and say, oh, I wrote this and this amazing thing is happening now with the words. Yeah. So I wanted to talk more now about your applied project, which is Indian School. Um, I've been doing a little research online and it says Indian School actually received the Kennedy Center um, Latinx Playwriting Award for Distinguished Achievement. Yes, it sure did. I had submitted it last year and uh, it received that award, which is huge for me. Absolutely um, thrilling and exciting. So, uh yeah, it's changed a little since I submitted it there in good ways. I've been able to revise it. It had a reading at the Institute of American Indian Arts, which uh, my dramaturg, Karen Jean Martinson, set up. And it uh, changed after that. I got great feedback from the actors there and from the faculty there. And we spent about four days there just working with people not only on Indian school, uh, because they really took that and and uh I wasn't there for for their casting or rehearsals or anything like that. So I just got to go in and see what they did with it, which was wonderful and amazing. So uh and then after that we met with them and they gave me their feedback and new ideas or things that seemed awkward for them on stage or things that I may have forgotten to include that were links from one thing to another. And that was super helpful. So since the Kennedy Center Award came out, it's um, it's changed even more for the better, I, I think. Um, but yeah, when we were at the Institute of American Indian Arts, we did other things like they um, invited me to do a writing workshop with the students. And that was one of the best experiences I've ever had. The, the writing and, you know, I do workshops to get to 
the the writer's voice, the original voice, and not pulling from somewhere outside, but coming from inside and do a little bit of meditation and uh, some of the things that the students at IAIA wrote were just magnificent. Things that um, just looked at them, I could, it was unbelievable how uh, deep they went with beautiful stories. So that that experience also informed me how brave you can be with your writing. Like you can really do things that, you know, go past where all your barriers are of fear of uh, judgment and fear of um, self-revealing and, and just move past that and, and write what you need to write and write what comes from deep down inside. I love that. And would you tell the listeners what is Indian School about? Yes. It, um, if I could, I want to talk about what I thought it was going to be about uh, and then move into what it became. I uh, was going to write the story from the song that I talked about, which is called Look to Babo Cuvity by Ted Ramirez, who um, is an amazing musician. And I had always thought I was going to write the story of the little boy who's taken away because the song is in the little boy's voice. And I was going to show him the Indian school and then coming back. And after the language had been beaten out of him, he could no longer um, speak to his family. And, and that, that's where I was going to, going to go with it. And I sat down to write it. And suddenly from somewhere, uh, an old man named Charlie showed up and wanted me to write his, his story. And I'm saying this, uh, metaphysically. <laughs> I mean, I mean, an actual, uh, live man named Charlie didn't show up, but I don't know where Charlie came from. I don't know who he is, but he definitely wanted his story told. So, uh, it's about this man who was in the Indian schools in, uh, in the early 1900s. He was taken from the Arizona desert and then taken far away to Haskell School, which is what they used to do. They would take children far away from their homes so that they couldn't walk back or get back. And so that's Charlie's experience as a child, a small child taken away. And then him, right after that, joining the Army and doing a full uh, career in the Army. And then coming back and some of the abuse that he learned at the Indian school, he uses on his grandson. So I wanted to show the generational abuse that came from the Indian schools, because something that, that um, was really uh, amazing and delightful is that I kept hearing people say they had never seen children beaten until they went to Indian school. So I, I loved that and I kind of kept that. I kept characters who had never experienced Indian school now are trying to bring Charlie back to his indigenous ways and reminding him that, you know, we don't beat children here. This is not something we do. That's something you learn from the colonizers. So part of the reason I wrote this play is to hold the colonizers accountable. I think they were my audience was, this is what happened, and this is how it has um, affected 
family. And over and over again, people said it was coming back to um, indigenous ritual, the, the rituals of their nation that they were taken from. Uh, those types of things were the strongest in healing people from the atrocities that happened at the Indian schools. Uh, the Indian boarding schools. I know they got better, so a lot of people have a good experience from, you know, later. But in the in the early 1900s and even after that, they they weren't good places. They were really horrible places where children were were horribly abused, and some of them never came home because they died. Their little cemeteries next to all the big uh, Indian boarding schools because that's where. They buried children who died there, and there are lots of graves. I'm sorry, is this like too much to talk about? No, I think it's it's very much. Um, I feel like it's the same with me when I talk about history, indigenous history. It is very emotional because you realize um, this is this was an actual reality, and we're still feeling those impacts generations later. Yeah, and I think that with. With the topic of Indian school and boarding schools, it's a very much needed topic that is important to hear um, for both natives and non-natives. Um, it's a history that yes. is deserving to keep alive yes. through storytelling. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you for that. Because that's how I feel. A lot of us didn't didn't know. I mean, I knew a little bit because my uncle um, wrote the song. So another part of the arts that was informing me, not only me, but many, many people. Like he's, he's a, a well-known, he's the, um, he's considered the Southwest troubadour. So a lot of people have heard of his music. They know that story only because, only through the song, but we didn't learn the history of uh, Indian boarding schools or the whole idea from um, Colonel, oh, what was his name? Pratt, who said, um, probably have his title wrong. I think it's Captain um, Pratt, who said, uh, "You know, kill the Indian, save the man." And I had never heard that till I started doing more research. Like, where where did this all start? Where did this come from? And we don't we don't learn it in school, in you know, dominant cultural school. Um, maybe they will start teaching it, but it's. Yeah, it's something I feel like uh, this big, ugly secret that no one talks about, but it's still affecting families through generational abuse that was learned in the boarding schools. Mm -hmm. I think what you're saying, it relates back to something that we've been discussing here at ASU, which is um, scholarly activism, where it's a common thread that we're seeing with Native students where they're taking what they're learning about um, with Indigenous history, what's going on in our communities, uh, what's going on in present day. We're taking everything and then putting it towards what we're learning or, what I guess, uh, what we're presenting in school, um, what we're choosing to write our papers on. And for yourself, it's, um, you know, choosing to write this play so in a sense, we're, we're, that's how we're giving back to communities is what we're doing in college right now. Absolutely. I think this is our opportunity 
to be here and not just regurgitate what um, you know the colonizers have told us over and over or, or kind of be derivative and take their stories and retell them with you know our faces but what are our stories what are you know where what does this look like and it's it's pretty amazing the things I've learned that are similar to people um, of color that aren't only native, but I've been sitting in a class where I will talk about something that I've written and uh, the people who are nodding their heads are, you know, African-American students or, you know, other students of color who are like, yeah, <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Where no one else does. You know, the rest of them are like, why did you write, for example, Charlie, um, you know, he beats his grandson and later he's talking about, I did it because I loved him because I didn't want him to die in the Indian school. I wanted to teach him myself and it was horrible. And, and his, uh, his grandson's mother is like, do not touch my son. I mean, she does all the right things. She was, you know, she's healthy and uh, emotionally and mentally and understands what it means to be a good mother and protects her son from the abuse. But the people who understood that were other um, were African American students who were like, I know what that's like. I know, you know, what families do to protect their children, and they do it. You know, it's it seems totally misguided, but it's uh, I'm protecting my child so something worse doesn't happen, so they don't get shot out there by somebody, or you know, I, I have to do this this thing myself and it's horrible and it's you know something we're healing from and Charlie under learns that it's wrong and he doesn't need to do that but it was not the I guess the students who come from dominant culture who understood that they're like he, he can't love his grandson if he does this thing and so it was really a hard thing I had to protect Charlie <laughs> in some ways in my writing um, and take out some of the things that it, that he may have actually done just to show, um, yeah, this man has done terrible things, but he also um, is a man who cares and is, is loving. It, it was a hard kind of road to, to walk on, and, the, and that's just struck me. I, I mean, just thinking about activism and telling our stories sometimes they're really hard to hear and um telling them anyway is a leap of faith for for us and having other students who had similar experiences or have family members with similar experiences is really validating because there are so many things that i would just change if uh if I didn't have that support of other people going, I know what that's like uh, because we've experienced the, you know, the evils of colonization as well. So that kind of activism uh, comes through that scholar activism that you were talking about. That kind of leads into my next question perfectly, which is um, what can indigenous students take away from the play? I think um, what I would like is for them to just uh, uh, comfort knowing that someone is 
uh, that it's okay to tell the stories, even if they, um, even if no one else will understand except for other uh, indigenous students or indigenous people. I think telling those stories, um, not because they're commercial, not because you think that they're going to be famous. I mean, didn't write this play thinking I was going to win the Kennedy Center Award. That's not why I wrote it. I didn't go into it thinking that. It was a requirement in my class to submit it to that um, to that competition, and I'm glad I did. But that isn't the reason I did it. And so, telling the stories, even if we don't have any acknowledgement except for, um, you know, just a, a nod from each other, going, "Yeah, thank you for telling that story." And it might be a little hard this particular story for people who have experienced this kind of um, these. I guess experiences, Indian school experiences in their family. So I guess trigger alert. It might, uh, it might be difficult to, I know it is because there were some students at IEIA who, who just, um, one young woman who was cast in the role and she said, yeah, I can't stop crying enough to be able to, to do the role. And she was very sweet and she handed me back. The script, she said, I'm sorry, I can't stop, I can't stop crying. So it might be very triggering for some students. And, and that's, you know, that's okay to say, no, I'm not going to listen to this story. But I think that's, that's the big thing is, is we need to tell these stories. We need to hold colonizers accountable. And um, I think through the arts anyway, is a, is a really great way to do that. That brings me back to um, an interview that we had a couple months ago. Our podcast, we spoke with Therese Marie Maylott, who is the author of Heartberries. And one thing that she noted in her interview was just how unapologetic storytelling can really be a powerful thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's where it comes to the courage to just tell the story the way it's meant to be told without letting anyone off the hook. You know, that's, that's the thing, um, for me is, you know, going through some of the different, um, Indian school exhibits that, um, my partner and I have gone to around the country. She's also indigenous and, going around and, and looking at things and it feels like Indian school exhibits always let people off the hook at the end. Look how great Flynn was with all of these things they were able to be, you know, incorporate or assimilate their culture into this other culture. And see, it wasn't, it ended up not being so bad. I'm like, no, it was bad. And, um, and I think having, yeah, the just, telling it like it is. I absolutely agree with that. So yeah, thank you for saying that um, about the the writer. So would you mind sharing with listeners the upcoming dates of Indian School? Like when and where people can check it out? Yes. Uh, So it will be at the ASU campus, Arizona State University, and it will be in the Nelson Fine Arts Center and it will be in Studio 133. And the dates 
are, we opened February 21st and we run through March 1st. So it'll be uh, Friday, Saturday with Sunday matinees at two o'clock. Great. That's so exciting. Thank you. And this could be my final question. What would be your advice to fellow Indigenous students who are in theater, who are in film, who are in an arts program in higher education? What would be some advice you'd want to share with them? I would say uh, don't wait for people to write your roles or write your stories. Write them. Uh, there was a young Diné man that I met at IAIA, and he said that his grandfather wouldn't allow him to uh, be in my play or any play where he was portraying himself being um, injured or harmed in any way because uh, his grandfather believes that that will um, bring that harm to him. And um, he looked at me and he said, I know I'm in theater and uh, every role has something like that. And I looked at him and I said, then you need to write your roles. You need to write your stories so that you can still do theater, but do it in a way that's respectful to your beliefs and your grandfather's beliefs. So that's what I would say. Don't wait around. It's hard. You know, we're always looking for those indigenous roles or we're looking for roles that fit us and the colonizers aren't necessarily writing them or writing them in a way that's authentic. And maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But we need to write the stories and pull together people that can um, can perform in, in those roles and people who are excited about directing them and people who are excited about designing them, but don't, don't wait around, do it. Just make it happen. That's my advice. Great. Well, thank you so much, Esther, for speaking with our podcast. I am very excited to share your words with everyone. And I'm very excited to check out Indian school. And it's just amazing to think that, you know, storytelling, indigenous storytelling is really taking place in higher institutions and that's just incredible. Exactly. And, and that they're being, you know, honored and, and, um, and actually produced by at ASU. And so I'm really grateful for that. Thank you so much, Taylor. Thank you. I'm Nicolette Cheney-Parkers with Turning Points Magazine, and this is My Take. In My Take, myself and other contributors are offering our take on recent news and or events happening here at Arizona State University and throughout Indian Country. Today, I am discussing land acknowledgments. Generally speaking, a land acknowledgment is a statement that acknowledges and recognizes the indigenous peoples whose land and territory exists where we, visitors, are living, working, and studying. It's a way of respecting the indigenous peoples who are the original caretakers of the land. Here at Arizona State University, our campus is on the lands of the Akumil Al-Atam and Pipash peoples, people who live on these lands and who also attend the school. And ASU practices land acknowledgement by delivering a formal statement at student events. Most recently, filmmaker Taika 
Waititi at the 2020 Oscars delivered the first land acknowledgement at the Academy Awards. He said, quote, Tonight, we have gathered on the ancestral lands of the Tongva, the Tataviam, and the Chumash. We acknowledge them as the first peoples of this land on which our motion picture community lives and works, end quote. While the practice of giving a land acknowledgement is not new, Taika Waititi's land acknowledgement at the 2020 Oscars thrusted this discussion about what is a land acknowledgement um, into the national discourse. So in other words, people, you know, just everyday general public who have never maybe heard a land acknowledgement before, um, they're starting to have these discussions or being made aware of the practice of giving a land acknowledgement. There is also debate about land acknowledgements, from the meaningfulness of such acknowledgements, who should give the acknowledgements, to how the common practice of giving land acknowledgements has made such acknowledgements appear performative and a token gesture. While I won't be speaking to all of these aspects of the debate, I do want to share my take and personal experiences with land acknowledgements. Personally, my earliest memories of land acknowledgement, aside from being aware of the boundaries of Dineta or the land of the Navajo people um, within our Fork Sacred Mountains, was on our road trips to North Dakota. I am both Standing Rock Sioux and Navajo, and so traveling from Arizona all the way to North Dakota was a very common practice for me growing up. During these road trips, my parents would let my siblings and I know when we would pass through Pueblo territory or Ute territory, and to the best of their ability, would tell us something significant about those tribes or their land. For example, the Devil's Tower is a sacred site for the Shoshone and tribes other than my own Lakota people, and it is located in Wyoming. And so I remember um, oftentimes driving actually into the monument um, up to as far as we could go for Devil's Tower and hearing my mom talk about um, these people um, and the significance of um, this national landmark to us and to them. Um, as an adult, I continue to practice being aware of whose lands I am visiting or living within. So whenever I travel, if I'm going to New York, um, I go and I want to learn more. I try to go to visitor centers. Um, this past 2019 summer, I was in Eotierra in New Zealand. Um, and I went and I learned about the Maori people, um, in particular for me, since one of my interests is in child welfare, um, I went and I learned about the issues that the Maori were having um, in protecting their children from being taken by their government. I personally believe that being a good relative means practicing and living in ways that extend beyond land recognition. In the Navajo way, or kinship compels me to also be a good relative to other indigenous peoples and their land. Um, and I choose to show this kinship to my indigenous relatives by supporting their efforts to protect and defend their indigenous rights, 
their land, sacred sites, and culture, just as I would advocate and make efforts for my own people in my own lands and territories and even beyond that. As a student, I'm away from those lands. I also make a concerted effort to contribute to the indigenous communities where I live. So here in Tempe, Arizona. Now, this is my personal take on land acknowledgements. I believe land acknowledgements can be important, but the key word here is can. I think that well-intentioned land acknowledgements need to go beyond simply stating whose land and territories we are visiting. Um, and by being a visitor, I'm also he a visitor here in the lands of the Akamil Al-Atham and Pipash. And so wherever we are, if it's not our own indigenous lands, we are visitors to those lands. At an individual level, um, you know, I think people can ask questions about how to be a good neighbor to the indigenous people whose land you're visiting. I think this is a great first step. Um, at an institutional level, land acknowledgements, um, I believe, need to be followed up and connected to practices of supporting indigenous peoples. So, for example, now that Taika Watiti has acknowledged the indigenous lands in California and the indigenous peoples in California, one question I have is, what are the Academy Awards and the film industry doing to support emerging indigenous filmmakers, and what are they doing for the indigenous community whose lands they are visiting? I personally believe that land acknowledgements are a first step, but should not be the last step to recognizing native peoples and their land. Um, I think ultimately <laughs> the, the next step should be working to give the land back to native peoples um, but also working to support and uphold the treaties that Native peoples have with the federal government. So after talking about land acknowledgments, if you want to know whose land and territories you are a visitor to, um, there is a website that you can check out. The website is native-land.ca native land.ca. This website functions as a map that you can search. So you can insert your address or a state um, or even a country. And you can see on that map um, the territories and the languages of indigenous peoples of the location that you inserted. And so this is extends beyond just the United States. This is a world map of indigenous land and territories and I recently looked at it and it, they now have a feature um, where you can see the treaties that are associated with the land you are visiting. I hope that sharing my personal experiences and my take on land acknowledgements helps you to think through land acknowledgements for yourself um, there is debate about land acknowledgements, as I had mentioned. Those debates can be found if you Google or you search for land acknowledgements debates, purpose of land acknowledgements, meaningfulness of land acknowledgements. Should we even have land acknowledgements? Are land acknowledgements performative? 
Those are all questions that you can search on websites and search engines to learn more about the debates on land acknowledgements and to make a decision for yourself on what are your beliefs on land acknowledgements and how meaningful they are or aren't. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my take with me, Nicola Deschini Parkers of Turning Points. If you have a take on news happening at ASU or throughout Indian country that is important to you and you'd like to be part of this segment, reach out to the Turning Points podcast team. Today's episode featured the music of Christopher Luna and the Sun Devil Drum Tie Circle. If you are or know of a Native musician who would like to be featured, email turningpoints at asu.edu. Check out our past stories by visiting our Medium page at Turning Points Magazine and keep in touch through our Twitter at ASU Turning Point or Facebook.com slash ASU Turning Points. And make sure to subscribe to the Turning Points Magazine podcast to stay up to date on what's going on with the Turning Points team. Hey, you're not, 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 h